The Kennedys are a uniquely American dynasty. What does that say about our country? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, it's uh, an interesting time. Three, two, one. The Kennedys. What is it about that now universally known family name and America for all these years? Why is it that just a few months ago at Dealey Plaza in Dallas, where the president was gunned down, a thousand people gathered expecting the arrival of the long-deceased John Kennedy Jr., the crowd was convinced that he would join Donald Trump as vice presidential candidate in 2024. What the heck? It's a combination of celebrity worship and a psychological need for royalty, perhaps. But why this family? The president died nearly 60 years ago. Yet still you say Kennedy and people pay attention. What can we learn about America today from the Kennedy's family story? The brief presidential years were called Camelot. Camelot is defined as a romantic, glittering fantasy about the court and castle of King Arthur. In the 2020s, America is as fascinated with royal celebrities as ever, and at least as nativistic and anti-immigrant as the days when the actual immigrants behind this seemingly perpetual myth arrived on our shores. With us today to talk about his new book, The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty, is author Neil Thompson. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Bert. Glad to be here. Good to talk to you. Well, good. We're going to examine what it is about the family that represents so much about America then and now. Neil Thompson is a journalist and author of five highly acclaimed books, including a Curious Man, Driving with the Devil, and Kickflip Boys. He's written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Esquire, Outside, Vanity Fair, The Wall Street Journal, Oprah.com, and more. He's appeared on NPR, The Daily Show, History Channel, PBS, ESPN, BBC, and other outlets. Neil's books have been named Best Of by Glamour, Amazon, O Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, Outside Magazine, and elsewhere. He lives in Seattle with his family, where I understand it's raining. Uh, <laughs> a big surprise. When, well, thanks for being with us. When your newspaper dispatched you to cover the disappearance and death of JFK Jr. back in 1999, one bartender cried to you that she felt like I just lost a family member. What is it about the Kennedy family so fabled so close and yet so remote in so many ways that has cultivated such familiarity and fondness. I think it's interesting that you um, both introduced your uh, your show today with uh, a reference to the weirdness that was happening recently at Daily Plaza and and uh, uh, these conspiracy folks waiting for the reappearance of long dead JFK Jr. Um, and then and then uh, that. 
in fact, ties uh, sort of neatly to the uh, in both the introduction of my book itself and my introduction to this story. I covered JFK Jr.'s death for my uh, newspaper, The Baltimore Sun, back in 1999. Uh, I was up there with the hordes of other reporters uh, milling around the, the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport. And uh, as you mentioned, while waiting to, to, to learn what uh, what became of his plane, we know what became of it and him, but uh, at the time uh, they were still searching for the plane. Uh, this bartender uh, practically broke into tears after serving me my Jameson's, thankfully. Um, and, and her comment about losing a family member triggered something in me. It's actually the beginning of my interest in, the, in what became this book. I realized we're so connected to this family still after so many years. You know, JFK served for, for three years, right? Uh, his, uh, his brother never got a chance to become president. Um, their, their actual time in office, not including JFK's term uh, in, the, in the Senate and Congress, but their actual time serving in, in elected office was minimal compared to our connection mm. to them as a, as a family and as, as, as some people would put it, America's royalty. Um, so with this book, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the family history and explore where did that start and where did the family actually come from? Who were, this was the question I asked myself driving back from Hannesport, who were the first Kennedys? Who came here? What was it like for them? How did they uh, make it in, a, in America back in the day, um, uh, 1800s, which is, was their start? And, and what does that uh, family history tell us about both the Kennedys that came later in the 20th century? And, and what does it tell us about us as a country? That was, that was sort of my mission in writing this book. Yeah, there's so much to that. So many things that reveal so much about who we are as a country. And most people consider JFK's father, family patriarch, Joseph Kennedy, as the person with whom the Kennedy story begins. But you think it's, it's really important, it's vital to go back two more generations to Joe's grandparents, Patrick and Bridget. Why? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I guess I've always been intrigued by the story of Joe Kennedy, um, and he's been written about a lot, and he gets both credit and scorn for, for how he lived his life, um, both in terms of uh, elevating that family, you know, mainly his sons, um, to, to the hi highest levels of political influence in this country. Um, but he was just not a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he uh, was unfaithful. He was unscrupulous at times. Uh, you know, there's a long list. And I didn't want to tell that story. I wanted to know, okay, what came before Joe? Uh -huh. There had to be some beginning to this, uh, this, this, this family dynasty. Where did it start and who were they and what were they like? Mm -hmm. And initially I thought I would start with his father, PJ. Patrick Joseph, uh -huh. <clears throat> who, born in 1858, first-generation Irish-American, uh, saloon keeper, became a politician like yourself, worked in the, um, uh, uh, for years uh, in the uh, Massachusetts state legislature, um, before, all of this before uh, Joe was uh, e even in, in Harvard. Um, 
and in fact, PJ's success was what allowed Joe to become the, uh-huh. the more broad figure that he became. You know, it was he was a son of wealthy, a son of wealth, <clears throat> not a not a self-starter, not a self-made man as he sometimes portrayed himself. It's yeah. <laughs> a lot of that but, going around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I mean, I became intrigued with PJ's story, and then wanted to know, okay, where did PJ come from? And went back further. Uh-huh. Um, and this, my research took a long time. I did this oh, book bad. in fits and starts, literally starting in 1999 with JFK Jr.'s death. I visited Ireland. I visited the Kennedy compound, which is still there. The 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 buildings that uh, uh, Joe's great grandfather uh, came from are. Some of them are still in existence in County Wexford, mm. um, but I could never quite find the the right angle to take with the story. I, I knew I wanted to explore it. I, I sometimes ask myself along the way, do people still care about the Kennedys? Right. And wondered had there been too much written about them. Then what what really motivated me and got this project back on track was the election of Donald Trump, 2016, yeah. and. And a lot of the rhetoric that I heard before and after uh, his election uh, reflected sometimes word for word some of the the um, the stories that I read from newspapers of the 1800s uh, and the anti-immigrant attitudes and hate and fear directed at yeah. the Irish Catholic immigrants like Bridget and Patrick Kennedy. So I wanted to explore that. What were, what was life like? for them yeah. and come to a country that didn't want them. There's so much to it, wanting royalty and still uh, being nativist and anti-immigrant. And so this research must have been interesting, shall we say, took you a lot of different places, including Ireland, which I was I, I was uh, lucky enough to visit once. Beautiful country, my goodness gracious. Uh, uh, and the, the, two, the first two Kennedys to set foot on American soil had very common names, Patrick Kennedy and Bridget Murphy. There must have been a lot of people with those names. Must have been interesting research. Tell us about the challenges you had to overcome by tracking such common names across an ocean and a century and a half. Yeah, uh, that's an excellent point. They were the most common names in Ireland, Patrick and Bridget, and uh, it, it created all sorts of challenges. And I, I, went into this project determined to clear up some of the um, confusion or, or misconceptions or uh, at times just outright, you know, fallacies around who the first Kennedys were and where exactly they came from, where they landed in America, um, because there have been other writers who have gone down uh, this path uh, to a certain extent in biographies of Joe, for example. Um, but for a long time, no one really knew for sure when, for example, Patrick Kennedy left his home in Wexford, when he landed in Boston. Um, same with Bridget Kennedy or Bridget Murphy Kennedy. <clears throat> so I wanted to clear that up, and I'm not sure I did it entirely. I think I got closer than maybe others have in the past. But the big challenge was looking through ships, passenger manifest documents uh, from the 1840s, and coming across scores and scores of people named Pat or Patrick uh, or P. Kennedy and scores of women named Bridget or Biddy, as the nickname went, uh, or B. Murphy. 
Um, so I think I narrowed it down to a couple of ships that they were likely on and roughly when they came. The only thing we know for, with 100% certainty is that they uh, married, found each other and married in 1849 uh, in, in Boston. Um, but the, the research into what came before that was and remains challenging. And, you know, they were, they were poor immigrants. Nobody was keeping track, yeah, right. uh, or, and nobody cared if the record-keeping was accurate or not. Um, but you got it. I'm, I'm, it must have been kind of fun to 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 know. Ah, I got it. That was the first one uh, that they that they you, you nailed them and figured out who the heck they were. And when I think about crossing the ocean in the uh, 19th century, I wouldn't. I don't know. It take a lot to get me to do it. I am not good on the ocean, and I imagine a lot of people aren't. And it, it's you know it takes a lot to get people to leave their homes. Uh, today's immigrants do it because of dire threats to their just ability to live. Back then, right. the, the journey across the Atlantic was, of course, a daunting undertaking. Paint a picture for us of the Ireland of Bridget Murphy. What what were the factors that make, made her take this huge, highly uncertain leap? Why yeah, would she leave? Yeah. What could motivate her? What could? That's a great question, and I think it's what drove some of my research. I wanted to know what would prompt someone to take this giant, incredible risk to leave the comforts of her home uh, and, and to sort of fling herself across the ocean the way she did really? and to do so alone as a, as a young single woman crowded on these uh, dangerous, uh, deadly ships. So um, I did, uh, when I first went to Ireland and, and did research, I spent a lot of time trying to understand uh, the, the the political and economic and, and agricultural factors that led to the Great Potato Famine, um, which began in 1845. Uh, potato crops across the country were decimated by this uh, infestation. And uh, I learned that, you, you know, it, it, it wasn't just a, a one, the, the fact that one crop was being affected. The, the political... Uh, factors that were in play meant that the the potato was made up of a huge portion of the Irish peasant farmer diet. <clears throat> uh, the uh, Irish did not own their own land; they were all tenants. Right. England had taken over the the, the, the entire island, um, conquered it, and uh, and colonized it, and turned the Irish into basically their tenants. Um, so wealthy English landlords who owned the land had land agents on the ground in the localities who would collect rent from, from the tenant farmers. <clears throat> tenant farmers had to grow enough sellable crops to be able to earn enough money to pay the rent on their own land. Um, what they ate was the cheaper uh, mm -hmm. uh, stuff that they could eat more easily grow, and that was potatoes. And that was why such a large portion of their diet was comprised of potatoes. Um, cheaper, easier to grow, plentiful, nutritious enough. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I came across some references to um, the, the, the potato famine, and, you know, people would ask, well, why didn't the Irish just fish? Why didn't they just, you know, raise cattle? Why didn't they just grow other crops? Well, they did. And they could either eat those and then not pay their landlord and get evicted and be homeless, or they could sell those things um, and and give those money to, that money to their landlords and just eat, mainly eat potatoes, which was the case. 
So when you've got a, a, almost an entire population subsisting almost entirely on potatoes, mm. and then that crop dies, that's that's what led to the devastation of the potato famine. Um, and uh, it, it was horrific. These um, It was less horrific where Bridget lived, I should say, and uh-huh. where Patrick lived. Uh, they were able to keep their farm. They weren't evicted. They were able to, to survive it, but the the, the, the the famine changed that entire country. People were fleeing and dying by the, the hundreds of thousands. Um, and But I also make the case that even without the famine, Bridget's life in rural Ireland would have been a simple and hard life. Um, you know, if she was lucky, she would find another uh, a farmer and become a farmer's wife and raise the kids and tend, tend uh, to the crops and, and the livestock um, and, and would never rise above that state. And so I, I, I believe that when the famine hit <clears throat> and somewhere it, it, within the Murphy family, she comes from the line of Murphys, the decision was made that someone was going to leave to go to America and maybe try and get a better job and send some money back mm-hmm. to help the, the family. Bridget, I think, was the one who raised her hand because she was ready to get out. And I, and I say that because we see later in her life that she was uh, ambitious, hardworking, entrepreneurial, tenacious, gritty, smart, all these things. And I think that's why she looked at her situation. <laughs> I'm going to be poor, a poor farmer's wife if I stay here or I might die. Um, so I'm going to get out. I'm going to take the chance and uh, uh, go to Liverpool first, which is the first stop for uh, the, the, the crossings at that time, and then make my way to America and just try and start fresh, start a new life. That's what she did. And how old was she at the time? Um, again, due to spotty record keeping, uh-huh. we don't even know exactly when she was born. Uh, and uh, yeah. uh, one historian told me, most Irish at the time, they didn't even know when they were born. No. Uh, you know, they didn't celebrate their birthdays. There was nothing to celebrate necessarily. <laughs> True. Um, so she was born anywhere from 1921 to 1927. So she was, uh, when she came to America, somewhere between 20 and her mid-20s. I, I think um, you meant uh, 1821 to 1827. Sorry, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I kind of figured. Well, I, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking a bit about the American dream, really, why people come here and the hardships that they face, and every now and then uh, they do okay. Our guest today is Neil Thompson, who's got a new book out, The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of Amer- an American Dynasty. And, of course, back then, immigrants endured squalor, disease, blatant hatred, energized nationalists here in America, wielded the weapons of voter suppression, fraud, and violence to deny these immigrants their rights and opportunities. Uh, is it better today, or is it quite like the current... Uh, was it, is it like the current nativist anti-immigrant fervor? Your thoughts on, uh, on the comparison? Yeah, I I guess I was um, surprised, disheartened, um, and then maybe in the end not so surprised to to learn how aggressively certain forces back then tried to keep immigrants out or uh, at least down. Um, And it made me realize we, I, I sort of explored this idea of are we a nation of immigrants as 
JFK put it in the yeah. essay that became the book that he wrote. And that term has been used, you know, so frequently and loosely. Um, and I believe we are a nation of immigrants, and yeah. I think oh, yeah. I think is our our strength. But I think we're a nation of immigrants, despite a lot of efforts to prevent that from becoming the case. Um, oh, that's for sure. You know, and and you do. You, I mean, obviously, we see it today. Um, but you saw the same efforts, uh, almost like it was a playbook back in the, the the day of the time of the Kennedys. And you know, the Irish who were coming over on these. Uh, disease-filled, uh, uh, crammed full of poor people, uh, coffin ships, as they were known. Oh, geez. Um, that was the first, that was, those were the first waves of newcomers. You know, we had been a, a country that allowed uh, others to come from other lands um, to America. We didn't really have uh, specific laws on immigration right, or right. at the time, so you could just show up um, and try and make it for yourself. But... I- that's yeah, my background. You know, I, it's, uh, probably virtually everybody around here has that, has that background, and that really is America. And but but now, I mean, there's been waves of anti-immigrant back in the in the nineteen uh, early nineteen twenties with uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson and so many different waves of it, and and still today, and and uh, with. Uh, Trump saying, "Oh yeah, Scandinavians could come here, but not those people from, you know, down south." And the Irish, you know, my my dad remembered he was in Boston. There were help wanted signs that said, "Irish need not apply." He actually saw them. The venom wow. unleashed against immigrants from from Central America during the Trump years and continuing today. Are there parallels with the reception the Irish felt, and that of what? South and Central Americans are receiving at our southern border these days. Yeah, I think there are definitely parallels. I've, I've been careful not to make too specific a comparison because I'm not well-versed enough in the specific experiences of other subsequent um, True. Uh, immigrant populations and what, what life was like for them. But in a general way, uh, there, were, there were definitely similarities and parallels, um, you know, Forces that that worked to create laws that would keep out immigrants that those forces felt were the undesirable immigrants. You know, you make a great point. You know, Trump saying let's let's bring let's allow certain uh, immigrants from some you know from white countries, from uh, European countries, but not others. Uh, and I think those attitudes go way back. Um, and at the time of the Kennedys, the Irish were unknown, uh, sort of an unknown entity in America. I mean, they had been trickling in for, for many decades, but poor uh, rural Irish, they, they scared the establishment um, and especially scared uh, the nativists. And one of the big reasons that they were uh, discriminated against was their religion. Uh, you know, we, at the time, were primarily a Protestant nation, uh, and uh, these Catholics uh, were were disparaged uh, as this force that was bringing, you know, mm. papers bringing mm-hmm. the law up to the land, and there, and there were all kinds of conspiracy theories. I mean, l- literally the same kind of wackadoodle stuff that you see today. Yeah. Conspiracy theories that the Irish uh, were were only coming to America to as part of a wave of uh, you know this Catholic army that wanted to make papism. 
you know, uh, the, the law of the land, and therefore we had to create laws to suppress their religion and protect Protestant prayers in public schools and to, you know, literally ban Christmas celebrations until the late 1800s. I mean, there were there were so many efforts to keep the uh, the Irish and, and other Catholics down and keep them out of office. Um, you know, you see similar efforts today when it comes to um, voting laws and voter suppression. Oh, voter, yeah. And, and it was the same, similar efforts back then, um, you know, uh, nativist groups, and there were many of them back then. There was, I described them as sort of little boys clubs, you know, patrolling the, the polls, looking for anyone who didn't seem American um, and trying to prevent them from voting. <laughs> little boys clubs, man, that is, uh, there's so much of that going around. It amazes <laughs> me. It amazes me. Insecure, you know, got to prove their toughness and beat up on those other people it's it's just bizarre to me and i actually find uh, current u.s senator josh josh hawley talking about masculinity we need more masculinity i'm worried oh, that that's that's gonna connect with a lot of people you know it does there's no actual issues there but uh, you know, it's a culture war, and it goes on and on and on. And certainly when JFK was running for president, I remember all the, the whispers, oh, he's a papist. He's going to, you know, who's he going to be uh, uh, serving, the Pope or America? So, exactly. Oh, right. my goodness. And a lot of Irish settled in Boston, certainly. And a lot, yeah, the, a lot of the people from Boston, the Irish people in Boston, sent food and money to their starving uh, uh, relatives at the height of the famine. But it didn't translate into people from Boston wanting them as their neighbors back in the States. Tell us about that, please. So they sent help, just don't come here. Yeah, yeah, that was the <laughs> attitude. You know, there was like, I described this brief period of sympathy for the Irish um, and, and attitudes among uh, Bostonians because it was such a, a, a hub. You know, it, it was an abolitionist hub. Um, so there were sensibilities that existed in Boston that were... Um, aimed at helping their fellow man. Uh, and so during the potato famine and afterwards, there were efforts to send food and money to help the Irish. And then they started showing up. Yeah. And then the attitude in Boston was, whoa, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> we, don't, we don't really want you here. You know, you're going to take our jobs. You're going to, you know, bring your crime and your in your religion to our, our land and, and uh, why, don't you, why don't you stay where you were? Mm. Um, so it, it's a remarkable period because uh, there was so much resistance, but it couldn't be stopped. Uh, you know, again, no laws at that time that prevented boatloads of Irish from showing up. Thousands, you know, offloaded every day at the piers sure. in East Boston where, where Bridget and Patrick arrived. Um and you know they were needed in in the in the crappier jobs, um, at, which is where they all started. Like many immigrants do, they worked in construction, dug ditches, mm -hmm. dug the rail, built the railroads, dug tunnels uh, on the male side, and then the women largely uh, worked in domestic uh, service. You know, Bridget Kennedy was a maid for many mm -hmm. years, like my Irish immigrant grandmother was. Um, so literally starting at the bottom, mm. not only, uh, you know, despised by this land that they thought was the land of opportunity, um, but forced to take on the, the, the worst uh, jobs and for very little money and living in uh, terrible 
you know, crowded slums, uh, which is the only place they could afford to live, uh, disease-filled slums, just, uh, you know, dangerous, uh, crowded, uh, depressing places. Um, but, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, it, it, it was obviously very, very hard, but, but to use a, a great uh, Gaelic word, they had a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> and and we've talked about uh, Bridget uh, Biddy also. What about her her eventual husband Patrick Kennedy? You suggest that the prevailing circumstances for Patrick probably disposed him from an early age to plan for or even dream of life beyond the borders of the Kennedy family farm in County Wexford. What about him? Yeah, and I think there's probably a reason the two of them found each other um, because. Just as uh, Bridget was the first in her family to leave the farm and to leave her homeland and, and make that treacherous journey across the Atlantic, uh, similarly, Patrick Kennedy um, <clears throat> decided that uh, there was no future for him on on the small family farm. So even before the worst of the famine uh, drove him across the Atlantic to America, he uh, left the farm to start working at a, uh, cooperage, um, as a barrel maker. Uh-huh. Um, he worked at a brewery, um, in a town just North of the, uh, the farm where he grew up, um, trained to make barrels. So he had a skill to take with him when he left Ireland. Um, and I, I think that, uh, sense of, you know, self and sense of, um, There was some sort of drive there that that pushed both him and Patrick to be the first and their families to leave. Uh, And I I think finding each other in America kind of made sense. He um, ends up in East Boston with these waves of of other poor Irish men, and that skill that he had developed in Ireland, making barrels, gave him a leg up. The area where he and Bridget lived was a, a, a very robust and, and bustling shipmaking um, uh, uh, neighborhood, uh, the, the island of East Boston, no. across from Boston proper. Yeah. Um, and he worked for a cooperage there and made barrels, and so he was stably employed when others uh, sometimes weren't. Um, so I think that that planning ahead to get a, to, to develop a skill that might uh, serve him well, uh-huh. Erica was was pretty foresightful. Interesting. Yeah, that's good. That, that's impressive. They had certainly a lot going for them, and, and they still do, and there's a heck of a lot more of the Kennedys nowadays, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. for, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking uh, with author Neil Thompson about his book, The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty, what it means, why it's important, what it says about America. And uh, a lot of it is about, you know, the New England area. And, you know, compared to other parts of America, New England today has a liberal reputation. Uh, New England in the mid-1800s had its kind of Tea Party and Proud Boy equivalents. Tell us a bit about the the wide awakes and the know-nothings. Yeah, it was it was a revelation to me because, as you say, the the Northeast uh, and Boston, in particular, known as a liberal sort of hub and stronghold, um, and I later learned that that largely 
happened because of the uh, influx of Irish and their uh, eventual uh, uh, entry into politics and, and how that changed the, the dynamic of uh, politics in the Northeast later. But at the time, in the 1800s, when Bridget and Patrick were struggling to make their start, <clears throat> um, very much uh, a Brahmin stronghold, very Anglo-centric, and in, in uh, a very Republican at the time, and in many pockets, uh, very strongly anti-immigrant and, and nativist. Um, you know, I describe uh, people who came from that area or passed through that area, preachers, um, and Samuel Morse, for one example, the inventor of the telegraph, uh, who was a virulent anti-immigrant, anti-cap rabble rouser. I mean, he, there's there's a little tidbit in the book about how the uh, Morse code, which he helped create. Um, one idea behind it was that it could be used as sort of a secret code uh, to prevent Catholics from taking over the country. <laughs> you know, so at the time there were guys like that, well-respected um, and well-known and uh, influential, and held these very deeply and strongly held beliefs that America shouldn't be uh, open to immigrants like the Irish. Um, and so... And over time, that evolved into actual, um, you know, uh, official organizations like mm-hmm. the became the Know Nothing Party. Um, for, for those who aren't familiar with it, it, it later became the American Party. It was, I think, it initially began as the Native American Party, um, uh, with no regard for actual Native Americans, mm-hmm. um, and then the American Party, but. Uh, and there were various other versions of that in other cities, but they all became kind of lumped together and known as the Know Nothings because often these uh, members of these groups, some of them quite secretive, um, if they were asked about their political affiliation, uh, they would claim to know nothing. I see. Uh, the term Know Nothings evolved. <laughs> um, but they uh, they hated the idea of, America becoming a nation of immigrants. Um, they would meet in secret and devise um, plans for taking over local um, elections and, and getting their candidates in place and uh-huh. back mapped out actual legislation to enact if they were successful in their elections to um, to prevent immigrants from holding office, to enact you know, it was a long-term goal to enact a literacy test um, where immigrants had to pass a literacy t- test before they be- could become a naturalized citizen or hold elected office. I mean, they were obsessed with um, this this piece of governance, not governance for the good of the people or, or helping all people mm-hmm. or helping the poor, but keeping certain people out. That was one of their primary missions. Yeah, the, the idea that power belongs to just a certain specific group. Hmm, why does that sound so familiar today? <laughs> you know, and you talk about the uh, the difference between uh, Samuel Morse and his, you know, what, what we see as like a, a heroic guy, but he also had, you know, some, some ugly motivation. There's, we have a lot of historical luminaries where there's some hypocrisy. For example, Lyman Beecher, who was Harriet Beecher Stowe's minister father, Henry David Thoreau, both supported abolition of slavery, 
But at the same time, they were deriding the Irish as the Irish as shiftless and guilty of filth and folly. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I I think it's fascinating that people uh, uh, from that era um, who were, um, in some cases, beloved uh, and whose opinions we trusted and relied on, also off to the side held these held these uh, beliefs that. Um, certain people didn't belong in America and, and, and weren't to be trusted. And Thoreau is a great example. Um, you know, uh, uh, promoted uh, uh, abolition of slavery right. and on the surface came across as someone who cared about his fellow man, except for the Irish. And there were many examples of that that I describe in the book of, of others, uh, including many preachers who are ostensibly men of God, um, who uh, in, in the same breath would say that uh, the, the Irish were terrible people who, who shouldn't be allowed to come to America, or, or uh, if they did, shouldn't be afforded the same rights and opportunities as, um, mm. as others, including you know, pr- primarily those who, in their view, were, quote, the native-born Americans, mainly Protestant, uh, English uh, descendants of English ancestry. Yeah, and uh, you know it's it's fascinating today. If if anybody knows Boston, there's still Beacon Hill, which is the you know bastion, I think, of uh, you know Protestant uh, Brahmin families. And then there's Easty, Southey. That there's still well, Southey's been uh, I understand gentrified, but I don't think East, East Boston has quite yet. But that was c- central to the uh, the Kennedys story. And Patrick J. Kennedy, it was known at the time as PJ, as you say, and, and you say he had a casual relationship with his own education. <laughs> How did he live up to the low expectations for a poor Irish boy from lower class East Boston? And so what, what was his strength? What lessons did he uh, learn during his years as a longshoreman? that would prove quite helpful to his future. What, what, say more about his real-life learning that he did during those years. Yeah, I think, I think his child is, uh, childhood is interesting and kind of emblematic of what other uh, first-generation Irish kids experienced at that time. Um, you know, uh, education, for one example. Um, there, were, there, were, there weren't many... Uh, opportunities for him um, to go to school and uh, the opportunities that he was afforded were uh, public schools that uh, had a certain style of preaching that emphasized kind of a, uh, uh, again, a a Protestant um, mindset and uh, an Anglo-centric mindset. And at the time when he was just starting out in school, there were many protests by uh, Irish students and their and their parents, that their kids were being forced to say uh, Protestant versions of certain prayers or read from the Protestant uh, the uh, King James Bible, um, and that their uh, their own religion was downplayed or mm-hmm. in fact uh, dismissed or scorned, as was their own history. You, you know, the 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 uh, uh, English uh, British crown was held up as. Um, uh, the priority lesson for the, these 
these classes, and uh, uh, anything about Irish mm. history was just uh, forgotten. And so mm-hmm. it was, uh, there were a lot of protests during that time. Certain kids would refuse to say Protestant prayers because their Irish Catholic parents would tell them not to, and then they would get beaten with a stick. Um, so it wasn't a great time for Irish boys to um, to go to Protestant-focused schools at that time. And it wasn't yet a, a period where they could attend Catholic schools. Um, that kind of discrimination against the Irish did eventually lead to the creation of, of Catholic schools, um, but there just weren't enough of them around for the many, many first-generation Irish kids to, to attend. Um, and a lot of them were focused on girls before boys. So PJ went to school, didn't do great. Uh, he he uh, wasn't necessarily seen as a leader. Uh, there's a description of him as supporting others, but not uh, necessarily pursuing his own endeavors. He was a champion of the other. Um, and at some point when he was able to, he left school and just started working. He was a fatherless kid like many other kids he grew up with. Um, mm. You know, many of these kids in the neighborhood where he grew up, they uh, lost their fathers to disease or mm. on-the-job injuries um, or a little bit later in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, PJ grew up raised by his mother and three older sisters um, and then slowly found his way uh, uh in the workforce, working on the docks of East Boston, um, you know, loading uh, stuff onto and off of the ships that came in and out of that that port. Um, And I think that was the beginning for him. He learned how to uh, work. He got strong. He made connections to other Uh men like, and little by little that led him to what came next, which was buying a, a saloon and going into business for himself. And and he went from the saloon to uh, to being to becoming a a powerful political operative. He wasn't, as you say, good at campaigning or making speeches. So, what what kind of unique political strength did he have that obviously worked? Yeah, it did work, and he was recognized for it. I think he, you know, you could call him a community organizer uh-huh, at first. Uh-huh. He got very involved with uh, what was then known uh, as ward politics. Oh yeah. Um, his his ward in East Boston was Ward Two, um, heavily uh, uh, dominated by Irish immigrants and some Italian immigrants, um, and he uh, became uh, kind of a, a street soldier working for the the machinery of uh-huh. Ward Two. Um, uh, very democratic, they were in the minority at that time and were for many years after. Um, <clears throat> but he would help. With fundraisers, he would help on election day. He would help with getting out the vote. He would go door to door, informing uh, his neighbors of uh, the upcoming election and who was running and who he thought they should vote for. So he was re- very much a street level politician. Uh-huh. Um, and the ward bosses saw something in him. And then later, as he became a, a saloon owner and and then bought another saloon and a liquor store, and they saw his. Uh, ability as both a politician and a businessman, he was eventually tapped to run for elected office. Um, so, uh, and, and this was a time when things were starting to improve for the Irish and for Democrats in uh, Boston politics after um, many years of uh, being uh, outplayed and out-elected by uh, the, the Republicans. Mm. Um, so, 
20 years after the, the, the Civil War was when Boston finally uh, elected its first Irish Catholic mayor, uh, 1884. And it was a year after that that P.J. first ran for elected office um, and became a Massachusetts state uh, representative. Uh-huh. Who was that first Boston Irish mayor? Was that Curley? No. Uh, no, Hugh O'Neill. Ah. Uh. Uh, anyway. uh, Curly decades later, but uh, Another, you know it was the beginning of the Irish starting to make uh, a name for themselves in politics and, and creating their own brand of politics. Uh-huh. And I think in PJ's case, and you see it uh, later with folks like his nemesis and then subsequent in-law John F. Uh, Fitzgerald, they were heavily focused on just helping um, the struggling, you know immigrants in their in their own backyard mm-hmm. um he uh is described in the pj kennedy papers that i got access to at the john f kennedy library described as uh, someone who willingly gave uh loans to people who were in need or um uh you know paid attention to who was coming in off the boat uh newcomers to the to east boston and went out of his way to be a, a helpful politician um and that pays off over time, certainly. And, you know, interestingly, the power was originally held, I think, by the uh, Protestant uh, Boston Brahmins. But there were a lot more, I mean, and, and votes count. Who gets the most votes, at least in theory, wins. <laughs> and so, you know, working the crowds there and doing favors, that that it worked. I, I do find it curious that, you know, Americans have, always loved rags-to-riches stories where, you know, they generally prove quite useful in electoral politics. But when P.J.'s child, Joseph Patrick, became active politically, he downplayed such stories. Why would that be? You know, I think Joe Kennedy is a, an interesting character um, and maybe partly representative of what was happening at that time when you get into third-generation Irish Catholic uh, kids. Um, but in his case in particular, he wanted to distance himself from that, you know, poor immigrant backstory. <clears throat> uh, he wanted to be fully American. He didn't want to be Irish American. He wanted to be, uh, uh, honestly, he wanted to be a Brahmin. He wanted to be oh, sure. uh, like the the men who had worked to keep his people down. Um, he now wanted, once he became a banker and then a uh, involved in, in, in politics somewhat. He wanted to be like them. He went to Harvard, uh, you know, which was still rare at the time in the early sure. 1900s, uh, for, for Irish kids to, to be part of that, uh, elite club, but he wanted to be elite and he wanted his sons to be elite and he wanted them to be, uh, just like, uh, the Brahmins. And, you know, you, you do see that in later in JFK's career, he, uh, maintained something of a connection to his Irish past, maybe more than some of other members of the family. Um, but still, he surrounded himself mostly with Harvard-educated uh, wasps. Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes sense. And Bridget seems to be a, a big, big figure here. And, you know, at the time, there weren't a lot of choices for strong women. And she was a woman and a Catholic Irish immigrant. She was uh, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, as well as a mother. Um, and upon her death, 
1888, the Boston Globe called her, quote, a woman of many noble and charitable traits, and her loss will be deeply felt by the community. What does this say about Bridget's character? That she had ultimately managed to rise above her familiar designation as Patrick's widow. Yeah, I, I think she's really uh, a forgotten figure in the history of, of, of the Kennedys. And, and I describe her ultimately as the overlooked matriarch of that family, um, which sort of runs counter to the commonly accepted uh, view of Joe, her grandson, as the patriarch of that family. Um, none of it would have happened without Bridget. Um, mm-hmm. None of what came later w- would have happened without her strength and re- her resilience. Um, I-, I think it's remarkable that this woman who takes the chance to cross the ocean and then ends up in a city and in a country that doesn't really want her and her kind, loses her first son, John, uh, as an infant, um, <clears throat> then has uh, four more kids, and then loses her husband and is left uh, a widowed maid in the slums of East Boston with four kids. Mm. She could so easily have amounted to nothing. Mm. You know, I described how the, the, the career path at that time for, for women like Bridget was to work as a maid the rest of her life and mm. then maybe see her daughters become maids and her son become a, a, a ditch digger. Um, but there was something about Bridget, and unfortunately, we don't have letters or diaries uh, from her uh, to to give us um, uh. some of her own, her own thoughts. But I I do think, and that Boston Globe quote um, is is testament to it. She was a strong, determined, ambitious woman um, who refused to be to allow herself to stay stuck in the role of widow, in the role of maid. Um, in the role of poor immigrant, uh, uh, you know, nobody. Um, but but she did it in a way that I think wasn't flashy or or uh-huh. not too far ahead of herself. She worked hard. She <clears throat> worked uh, after working as a maid. She was a hairdresser. Uh, during her time as a hairdresser, she learned a little bit about how you uh, conduct business and 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 work with customers. Uh, and that led her to opening her own grocery shop in East Boston, um, and uh, it in fact was successful enough to buy the building where the grocery shop existed, and then buy the building next to that, and then she rented out those apartments above the shop to um, incoming immigrants, a couple of whom became her sons-in-law. So she was very community-minded and and very uh, entrepreneurial. Um, and, and I think her, her store had to have been a real hub for that community, much like, I, I think it's interesting, I've been to East Boston a couple times in the past few years, and you, st- you see that today. You see these small bodegas and, and mm-hmm. Latin American markets on the corners of East Boston today, and mm-hmm. it's the same sort of starting point for newcomers yeah. to America, where it gives them uh, a, a place to... Um, establish themselves and establish their families, and that's what Bridget did. She created a business for herself, and that, in turn, helped her give her children a leg up. And in particular, PJ is the one who benefited from some of her 
uh, influences as a businesswoman and a community leader. So the uh, the background, the real story behind achievement of the American dream, there's a lot more to it. A lot more women. You know, the strength of strong women like that. They, you know, sort of overlooked, but in fact, really important. And exactly a century after his great grandparents had left County Wexford, JFK toured the area and began to explore and embrace his Irish heritage, which inspired him to write A Nation of Immigrants. And we are, damn it. (laughs) How did he and the other Kennedys of his generation re-embrace the compassion for the poor, the unemployed, the disenfranchised, and the immigrant that seemed seemed kind of to leapfrog their parents? Yeah, I think it definitely leapfrogged Joe, um, who, as we discussed, was, was focused more on getting rich and gaining power and positioning his sons uh, right. uh, for elected office um, and had no time for, um, you know, his his uh, Irish past or, uh-huh. or the, the next generations of people like his grandmother. Um, he, he, he just moved past all that. Um, but I do think you see in JFK some recognition that he came from a humble place. Um, not just JFK. I mean, it's easy to sort of focus on him, but other other his siblings um, also, I think, developed despite Joe's attitudes. They developed a, a sense of um, you know where they came from and how that relates to where others are coming from as they try and make it in America. And so I think somewhere in there, you see the evolution of this empathy that is part of the Kennedy legacy, this this concern for others, this concern for people who have left. And and I I argue that 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 has to have come from Bridget, who Mm. who clearly demonstrated that. Um, in her lifetime, as and, and as did her son PJ, um, and I think uh, the, the, those lessons, you know, call it genetic or or something about the family history, just trickled down into other members of the family um, and, and established that sort of sense of purpose for helping others. And I think a, a good example of that too is the Special Olympics um, that uh, oh, right. Eunice Kennedy helped uh, create. And for me, that's a personal connection. I had a, da- a sister who had Down syndrome and who mm. competed in the Special Olympics. And so that event was always meaningful to me and our family and always uh, made me appreciate the Kennedys and their the role that they played, that Eunice played in creating that event that helped others who were often overlooked by the rest of us. And to come from, you know, poor counties in Ireland and from East Boston and then Somehow Camelot appeared, and it's it's interesting to me the the image, the, like the need, the psychological desire for some kind of royalty, and that people place that on John and Jackie Kennedy, and uh, it, it, it's fascinating to me how and, and boy, it makes it tough for the other members of the family. You know, can they can they have a choice to be? either politically powerful or just blend in. It seems like they're kind of boxed in by the legacy of, of fame. So I guess there's a, a few questions in there in just a couple minutes here. Yeah, I mean, 
I can't imagine the the pressure that uh, sat on the shoulders of subsequent Kennedys to um, do something with that family name. Right. Right. It, it, it just it carried so much weight. And, you know, we've seen over the years uh, certain members of that extended family uh, crack under that pressure. Yes. Drop drugs and alcohol or, or um, you know, uh, as well as the, the legacy of tragedy that seemed to follow yes. that family. Yes, around. so much tragedy. And uh, it's, it's, I mean, I, I, I do think that the history of the family is, is truly Shakespearean. I mean, uh, there's so much mm. there. Uh, over you know 150 years of of their history in America, um, but I it's been my hope that this book adds just a, you know a, a, a sheds a little new light on where it all began and how and why they became what they became, and and why it's an important part of America as to who we are. Thank you so much. Very interesting stuff. The book is titled "The First Kennedys: The Humble Roots." of an American dynasty. Its author is uh, Neil Thompson, who's been with us today. Thank you so much for spending this time. Thank you, Bert. Really enjoyed it. Camelot. Camelot. I know it sounds a bit bizarre. But in Camelot. Camelot. That's how conditions are. fall till after sundown by eight the morning fog must disappear in short there's simply not a more congenial spot for happily ever aftering than here in Camelot and I suppose the autumn leaves fall into neat little pile. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week, subscribe, don't miss a single one, on the website, Apple Podcast, or Stitcher.